Hello, my name is Carlos Del Rio, and I'm the president of IDSA, and I want to welcome you to this episode of Let's Talk ID. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me my colleagues, Dr. Wendy Armstrong, who is a professor of medicine and infectious disease and vice chair for education and integration here at Emory University School of Medicine. Wendy's also a past member of the IDSA board and a past chair of HIVMA. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. I also have with us today, Aaron Bonura. Erin is an associate professor of medicine and infectious disease in Oregon Health Sciences University. She is, and I me- did not mention this with Wendy, she's a program director of infectious disease here at Emory, and Erin is a program director of the infectious disease fellowship at Oregon's Health Sciences University. But she also is the, the chair of the MedEd community of practice. So we're going to be talking today about the match. We're going to be talking about fellowship. We're going to be talking about medical education, which is an area in which many of us in ID enjoy and we like to be on and we like to, to, to spend time on. So let's begin talking about the latest results of the match. This is a topic that has drawn really a great deal of attention from the ID community and even from people outside the ID community. And it's an issue that both of you have been studying and thinking a lot for a while. So Wendy, can you tell us a little bit about what the results were and sort of what, what the big take out of the match results this year? Absolutely. I'll preface it with saying for us, it was a little bit of a disappointing year, but I think we can also overemphasize the disappointment part because I, I'm not sure that that's totally accurate. When we look at the results, the one number that you can focus on is what percentage of total positions were filled. And so 74% of the offered positions in infectious disease, in adult infectious disease, were filled through the match. And that's 56% of total programs filled. And that represents a downturn over the past couple of years. Putting that into context, we still matched more people in infectious disease than at any point in history, with the exception of the last two years. And so we are training more people and more people in infectious disease. And so there was a downturn, but there's also a denominator issue. We are offering more positions over the last several years, and we are opening more programs. We were a little disappointed by the downturn and not seeing continued growth on the one hand. On the other hand, we are still actually a, you know, a very vibrant, very viable and exciting specialty, and we still continue to train great people. Yeah, I would echo what Wendy is saying. We haven't fallen off any cliff. We've been actually fairly stable in our growth over the last few years and got a little bit of a bump in the last couple of years. And it went down slightly, but again, we have been training more and more people over the years. And so it's a really good trajectory overall. No, I don't want to to end here, but I, I do need at least to acknowledge the situation in pediatrics, which maybe is not as good. So so can you mention a little bit about pediatric infectious disease? I mean, pediatric infectious disease definitely has suffered, I think, more than adult infectious disease. There are you know, many fewer applicants per position in pediatric infectious disease. And so their total filled positions is substantially lower. And so they certainly struggle more. So Wendy, as you mentioned, there are more positions offered. There are more programs in infectious disease. There were more positions offered and programs in the match this year than ever before. Are we simply trying to train more people that actually want to go into ID? And I think the question always comes is, what is the right number of people that we ought to be training? Yeah, that is the million dollar question. And I think I would love to see us figure out how to answer that, is what is the ideal number of people to train? On the one hand, we can say, and I believe, that we offer a very important expertise. 
And when you say that 80% of counties in the United States don't have an infection, an adult infectious disease doctor, and when you say that CMS expects that every program, uh, every hospital have an antibiotic stewardship program, and we believe that should be run by an infectious disease doctor, for example, then one would think that there should be a lot more infectious disease doctors. But clearly, if supply and demand were working in the way that they do, if there was a great need for more infectious disease doctors than we could provide, then things like compensation would be higher and so on. And I think that's in part the supply demand curve doesn't work as well because we don't have a we have a specialized expertise, but we don't have a procedure or something that only we can do. Other doctors can prescribe antibiotics, I think not as well as we can, but that affects the supply demand curve. So what's the right number of people for us to train? I don't know that answer, but I think we need to understand it. I think most infectious disease doctors think there should be more of us, and most C-suites in the hospitals may not understand our value as well as we would like them to. Yeah, we're very different than the oncologists, right? I mean, oncologists only prescribe chemotherapy. We don't have people going around prescribing chemotherapy, but but ID is different. What we The tricks that we have, the drugs that we prescribe, everybody feels like they're competent on prescribing, and I, I think that's a big difference. So, Aaron, uh, you were the lead author of a study evaluating why people choose uh, to not to go into ID or not go into ID. What are the challenges in attracting young doctors into the field, and what can we do about it? But I will ask you to first start by telling us why did you go into ID. You know, I was between a couple of different things, but ultimately, what it comes down to is I really enjoyed figuring out kind of that detective work of what was wrong with the patient and knowing that I had something that I could probably treat them with that could likely be successful. I enjoyed making people better that way. I mean, I looked through procedural type specialties. I was very into hemonc, the liquid tumors, but ultimately it was the infections that they got that really got me excited. And that's kind of how I got to where I am for sure. So tell us about your study in case in case people haven't read it. It's, yeah. in, it's in CID. It's, it's a paper that I recommend everybody to read if they're interested in this topic. Yeah. How to choose career. You know, it's really interesting. And I, I we looked at some work by Dr. Kreishak looking at how people choose careers. And I think we have to take a step back before we talk about the challenges. People choose careers by engaging in different career-like activities, right? They have to see themselves succeeding in that career field before they can choose it. Oftentimes, let's, let's take ID. We thought that that happened in residency. But when we did our study, we asked the participants, and most of them, it was before residency. So a third decided they were interested in ID before medical school, about a third in medical school, and about a third in residency. And so these engagement points are really important. We need to start thinking about how are we perceived and how are we engaging with those early learners? So looking at before medical school, many of them were reading about public health topics, engaging in some of those novels, learning about people like Dr. Paul Farmer and others. You know, these are things that really engage people in ID. But then when we get into medical school, we think about those engagement experiences and we can kind of split them into preclinical and clinical. For preclinical, it's all that content in microbiology, learning bugs and drugs, and how are we doing that? Are we doing it with really engaging best practices of teaching, or are we just asking them to memorize? And it turned out in looking at our study that if we're using best practices, like engaging type structures of teaching, making it exciting, adding sense and meaning, they're more likely to go into ID compared to the other one. So teaching our educators how to teach more effectively might be a nice role here to bring them in. And then from the clinical side, are they going into 
clinics and seeing people living with HIV? Are they going into general ID clinic? Are they engaging these experiences, engaging with mentors? That is more likely to bring them into ID, but not everybody has those. I think, Wendy, you were talking about in residency, how many actually get to do that. Yeah, in fact, um, a study done a couple of years ago, but only 39% of training programs require an infectious disease rotation. You know, Aaron, you just talked beautifully about how to initially interest someone in ID, but one of the keys is maintaining interest in ID, and we lose people in the pipeline in residency. It's a lack of exposure. They don't have ID rotations, but they have lots of time in the intensive care unit or on general medicine wards with exposure to hospital medicine specialists and so on. In residency, the critical piece is to maintain interest in ID that's been peaked by these important experiences earlier. And that, again, it's exposure, it's quality of teaching. Another point that you and I've talked about before, Aaron, too, in these last couple of years has been the influence on residents with the COVID pandemic. You can speculate, and we need to learn a lot more about what has happened over the last couple of matches, but anecdotal evidence suggests to me that a lot of residents are actually very tired. It's been very hard to train during covid They're potentially not ready to sign on to many additional years of training, and hospital medicine looks very attractive. That adds a piece to this whole discussion that can't be ignored as well. So, Wendy, I'll ask you the same question I asked Aaron. Why why did you go into ID? So I went into ID for some of the same reasons as Aaron. I love diagnostics. I've loved mystery novels since I was a child. There was no book or anything else that actually attracted me to ID. I was not aware of the specialty until medical school. But I love the trivia and the detective piece to it. But the other piece that was so important for me and what really influenced me in medical school were the issues of social justice. I was in medical school when HIV was early and seeing a vulnerable population that was horribly stigmatized was really important to me. And it drew together my interests in equity and social justice and the globalization of medicine and the impact of that with content that I really, really loved. Yeah, I mean, as, as as you know, for me, were two things. Number one was reading in high school, Micro Hunters. That, that book really fascinated me and, and really attracted me. But the other thing was mentors, right? It's exposed people I got exposed to. And it was when, when I was at Hopkins, it was John Bartlett here at Emory, you know, Jack Schulman, David Rimblin, David Stevens. It was people like that, those mentors that were so critically important. And if I hadn't rotated an ID, I would have never been exposed to those mentors. And I think Mentorship is really a critical component, and it's very hard to mentor somebody if they don't rotate with you, if they don't spend time with you. Spending time becomes a critical component in this. So this exposure is so important, and and Aaron, you talked a lot about also better methods of teaching. So can you tell us a little bit about the the MedEd community practice? I know you've both been very involved. Aaron, you're currently the, the current chair. What is the MedEd community practice, and how does that help in this? How does, what is the connection between that and what we're talking about here? Yeah, so the MedEd Community Practice is a nice, unique, structured group that was spearheaded by Dr. Brian Schwartz, Wendy was involved, myself, to kind of get it up and running with a few goals, really focusing on increasing teaching skills, increasing community, and we can talk specifically about those goals in a moment, but the unique structure of it was really based out of developing a shared purpose for a number of volunteers and work groups, and so It's a little different than typical committees at different societies in that these work groups are really empowered to generate ideas and 
get producing different work for their shared goals. And so it's been really lovely to see the output that's come out of the community of practice over the years. It's been quite tremendous to really focus on empowering of the educators within our community, the clinician ID educators, and these all align with IDSA's strategic initiative to kind of move forward and develop the workforce through our educators. Wendy, I know you've been involved in developing the career goals or the the goals for the community practice as well. The community practice was designed to support people who view their work title as being a clinician educator. And so that is most people that practice ID. It isn't simply for those who have salary lines of support with educational leadership titles, but most folks are seeing patients at the bedside. They are educating either trainees, students, residents, PA students, or they're educating patients. You know, maybe they're giving talks in their communities or talks in their medical schools in many other ways. And so this is the group to allow, um, to, to give community and to provide support to that group of clinician educators. And honestly, it's a group that when you speak to people in these roles, they feel like they need community and they need mentorship and they need career development. And this allows us to, to develop that for each other on a, on a national scale instead of a, within one institution. And that's, again, led to really amazing work that I, I want you to talk about more in the individual work groups, Aaron. But this also then rolls up or folds down into exactly what we're talking about, about building workforce and about encouraging people to be interested in ID. Because as we support this group, which is the main group that our trainees see, as we help these folks become better educators and learn more from each other and what best practices are, and as we support the career development of this group to even be involved in scholarship, that only makes this a um, more satisfying and more exciting career pathway when people don't feel like they're doing it alone, but are, are part of something that is mutually supportive and offers you know, peer-to-peer mentorship. So Erin, can I boss it to you to talk a little bit about sort of some key features of the different work groups? You were touching on some of them. I was excited to, to tell people about it. A number of our clinician educators didn't feel connected to a community um, before we engaged with them. And so that came out in our mentoring work group. So we have three work groups. We have the ID week work group, the mentoring work group, and the teaching and learning resources work group. And I'll talk about each of them. But for the mentoring work group, they created a number of years ago, a clinician educator coaching program that matches up and pairs up uh, a fairly senior a clinician educator with someone just getting in or at some stage where they feel like they need a little bit of mentorship, where they most of the time were not able to find that objective mentorship from within their institution. And they didn't have a connection to the ID community of educators. And so this coaching program has been a huge success and has only grown since it started and has really flipped the scale. So when they came in and they started this, they said they didn't have any connection. We survey them afterwards and it's all the way on the other side. They are totally in and connected and they feel like the advice that they got and the mentorship and coaching that they got was so different than what they expected or what they thought they could have received. It was really profound to get that from an outside source. So Aaron, if I'm an assistant professor starting my career Mm -hmm. at X university, how do I find this? How do I connect with this community practice? So within IDSA, you can join our work group online. We have an ID forum, so the ideas forum. 
And once you're in that, all the call outs for coaching programs or other initiatives can come through and you can join the work groups or just join into these programs um, when we have these call outs. And Wendy's been involved in the recruitment of volunteers into our actual work groups when we do those. But once those are filled, they can join into the programming. So into these coaching programs and other things that we offer. That's great. So really go to the website, go to My Idea Say, find your community there and and, and stay involved. Exactly. And so that's where you hear about everything from the community of practice. And when we have a call for volunteers, that's where we go. And then once those are closed, again, anytime we have programs that are open, like the coaching program, you can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. There's no limit to the number of people who can be involved. There are limits to the number of people who can be on work groups or in the leadership positions, but there's no limit to the number of people who can identify with the community of practice. We also have a web page with a number of fantastic features that, again, some of the other work groups have really spearheaded, including sort of chalk talks and a, and a newsletter and featured educators. Erin, you can add to that if you want. Yeah, the teaching and learning resources created a digest, which is kind of like a one-stop shop for all of their initiatives, which has been amazing. That's where we have our peer-reviewed chalk talks. People even outside of the community of practice can submit chalk talks and get those peer-reviewed. And those are really there for the busy clinician educator to pull off the shelf when they have a learner and they want to teach about something real quick because it's been reviewed, right? So they have some nice, really easy tools for our busy clinician educators to help them in their skill development. And again, you could go through the IDSA web page, or I simply just right now went to Google and, and typed in IDSA, you know, community practice and, and the page came up. Yeah. And and honestly, you know, like uh, when he was saying, there's no limit to who wants to join the community of practice. And which is what's nice is that every year we bring everyone together at our reception that is hosted by IDSA through the ID Week work group. And it's just phenomenal to see the number of people involved in this community. And that's where the networking happens. That's where the unofficial mentoring happens and the connections. Um, So I would certainly encourage people to look at that. It's the room where it happens, right? That's right. Do you want to mention the abstract review program too, which I think is another important. Exactly. This is from the ID Week work group. They put on a number of sessions every year now. Um, I think they did about six this last year, um, four symposia, two posters, but they do other things involved in ID Week and that's abstract review. So they had such a successful medical education content area abstract review where they taught their reviewers how to do a review and gave feedback to the authors and studied that. And the feedback on the feedback was so amazing that they Um, expanded that to all the other content areas. So they'd created a webinar for other abstracts that were submitted to IDSA and taught the other reviewers how to give feedback because this was so valued by our authors. And really they felt that it was going to improve their submissions in the future and the development of their posters or their oral abstracts. And then they moved forward and did an oral abstract coaching program, kind of blending the med abstract and the coaching program with the mentoring program and they coached those coming in for oral abstract and then did a feedback session afterwards. So a lot of support and skills building for our educators in oral abstracts and written abstracts and mentorship. There's a lot going on in these groups. It's an example of how it benefits every single member of IDSA. Exactly. Yeah, whether you know it or not, it's benefiting you. Right. So Aaron, back to the match. How does this meta community, you know, a practice address any of the issues that we talked earlier today? 
Yeah, it really comes down to building up, like Wendy was saying, building up our educators who are really those touch points with our learners, teaching them best practices, encouraging them to mentor and teaching them mentorship skills so that they can bring along and develop that interest and maintain that interest with our learners to build up the workforce. So it's really going back to that workforce. And also, in general, supporting our educators to the, in P&T and moving forward, if they have that, they're successful. So we even set up an education resource, an FTE survey with our mentorship group, and we're going to be reviewing that. How is this going to be helpful to our members in moving them forward? So we want our members to be successful. So it's through workforce, it's through supporting our members in other ways as well. So in summary, you know, individual IDSA members can get, should get involved. It's a good opportunity to, to get a lot of skills, a lot of mentoring, a lot of uh, really growth into, into becoming better educator, better mentor, better speaker, better teacher at all levels. And it doesn't cost you anything, right? Right. And it, again, offers you community and offers you opportunities to get scholarship and to help with promotion within your institution if you're in an academic setting. All, all important things. Well, we're almost at the end. So any, any final words that you have? Well, let's start with you, Wendy. ID remains, like I say, an incredibly vibrant specialty. I know that there's a lot of nervousness out there about the match, about what our trajectory is, but organizations like the MedEd Community of Practice, and thanks to IDSA for supporting the MedEd Community of Practice, these are the kinds of things that will maintain interest and continue for us to recruit the best and the brightest. And I believe that we recruit the best and the brightest. We will continue to work and develop our trainees and our students and our residents. And I have no doubt that ID is going to remain a strong specialty that we all remain proud to be part of. I echo that. I mean, the energized workforce within the medical community of practice is just so encouraging. They are out there and they are innovating and they are so excited to bring in the next generation that it's only going to get better. And we do bring in the best and the brightest. And I'm just so proud to be a part of this. Well, I want to uh, thank both of you for joining me today, but also thank both of you for, for actually starting and, and maintaining and growing this MedEd community of practice. I really think it's a it's an incredibly bright, vibrant group. It's an incredibly innovative group. And, and I think it's one of the one of those hidden gems of, of IDSA, something that people maybe not, not know about. So I will encourage people to get to know this is an incredible resource of the society and, and a good reason why you want to be a member of IDSA. So thank you for joining me today. And I look forward to continuing supporting the MedEd community of practice and seeing a better match next year. Great. Thank you so much, Carlos. Take care.